So let's talk about outlining our sermon. Um, why, why do we outline? Why do we outline the sermon? Why do we outline the text? Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've heard a lot of sermons where the outlining, it either feels artificial, feels imposed on the text. It, it just doesn't seem like a natural, it's naturally pulled from the text. Or sometimes you'll hear, um, at least in my culture, I don't, I'm assuming it, it's the same way in your culture, if not even more so, is alliteration. You know what I mean by alliteration? Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, I don't know. This is just off the top of my head, right? The, the power of the sermon the what the preparation of the sermon and the presentation of the sermon we could keep going the the preview of the sermon right maybe like sunday school what i mean by that is you should come to sunday school Right. And there, there's already, not only does it feel kind of like artificial, but this one's completely unclear. If what I mean to that is you should come to Sunday school or you should come to like prayer meeting, or if what I mean by that is you should come to Sunday school, you should read your Bible before church, right? You need to, you need to, you need to come getting ready for the sermon. Sing you know this is all this is just silly but and I've, I've just seen so many bad outlines that for a while i just had an allergy to them like i didn't even want to outline my sermon or outline the text because i just felt like it was very artificial um what what we do want to do though i i think that with our with our theological convictions or if our theological, theological convictions are to explain the text or to bring the text to bear on the lives of God's people for the text to serve the pastoral needs of the church at the time, right? If that's our goal, then, then we need a mechanism for observing, noting, and summarizing the natural developments of the text, right? We need a way to observe, note, summarize, point out, the natural developments of the text. So again, we're not seeking to be artificial. We're seeking to simply be helpful in understanding the text and explain the text. So we're not, we're not placing a grid on it. We're trying to pull out from the text what's already there. Because we, if, we, if we believe God communicates through ideas and words, then we should expect those ideas and words to flow and develop, right, from one line to the next. Um. And once we've developed and established, that's a, the, that's a theological conviction, right? A theological conviction is if we believe that God communicates through words, then we should expect those words to develop um, for an argument to flow, right? For there to be arguments, logical conclusions, even narrative progressions, poetic developments, thematic developments, or even in the text to have introductions and conclusions, summarizing statements, things like that. We should expect that to be in the text. And if they are there, then we should be able to note those and observe those and point those out. So that's, those are theological convictions. But, but methodologically, you know, once, we've, once we've established the big idea of the text, 
once we've established the proposition, the, the outline helps us understand how the text and the, the, the sermon develop and argue for the proposition. They, they help us understand how the text, how, how the proposition serves the text or how the text even serves the proposition. Both, both in the way we outline the text and in the way we outline the sermon. So our, our, our exegetical observations and our homiletical structures, we, in, in both of those, we seek to honor the Lord by thinking his thoughts after him. We, we, we try to understand God's logic. That's what we're doing. And we're seeking to love our neighbor by showing clearly how we've thought through the text and try to help them think through the text and understand the developments of the text. So that, those are kind of our convictions behind it. Um, theological, methodological convictions. And I think it's, it's important to note that this is, this is both an art and a science. Like, like all of sermon crafting is both an art and a science, meaning that there's some time proven methods, right? There's, there's time-proven methods. People have done this for hundreds of years. About outlines for their sermons, outlining their texts. This isn't something that, that we're coming up with on our own. And because of that, we can look at what they do. But there's also craft to it. You can get better at it. You can get better at outlining your sermon. You can get better at discovering the outline of your text. So we, we want to honor those who have come before us, for sure, but we also want to honor the individual personality as well. I think that the chapter you have from Dr. Chapel is very helpful. I do think that sometimes such a rigid structure tends to honor a method more than it honors individual personality. And so I think I, I do think there's a lot of flexibility in how we do, especially our homiletical outline. And we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about how um, standard ways of outlining, but I also want to talk about um, you know, ways that we can outline that might be uh, less common or that might allow for more artistic freedom. Uh, in your own sermon because because what we don't want to do is for you you to feel like it's artificial we want you to feel natural to who you are um so we should learn we should push ourselves to develop in skill but we should i think we should, i do think we should also lean into the way the lord has created us we can do it in a way that honors the way the lord has created us in our individual personalities but i, I do think it's it's best to master the way that those have, who have come before us have done this and and as we do that we, we allow for individual expression to, to come out. Um, so then as we outline, we, we do it, we do it for, uh, we do it to honor those who have come before us. We do it understanding it's both an art and a science. So who benefits? Who benefits from outlining? The preacher and the congregation yeah i think both yeah uh both us and the congregation so we we benefit because we understand the text more and we understand the sermon more 
right? I think often we don't understand how little we understand the text until we're forced to explain how all the words and phrases of the text relate to one another. We're, we're prone to make assumptions about the text. We don't interact with the text on a detailed level. And this is why you've done the text study sheet already, right? Um, because if, if we're under, to understand the individual words of the text, let's say, let's say you understand the individual words of the text, but you don't understand how those words work together, you still don't understand the text. And outlining forces us to do that. Um, ser a sermon isn't a meditation on just individual words, is what that means. It's an explanation of how those words fit together to form the argument the author is making. Um, so, for example, let's look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we, how do these ideas work together? I mean, we could do a whole sermon on being on justification, or we could do one sermon that we talk about justification for a while, we talk about faith for a while, we talk about peace for a while, right? Main point one, just justification. Main point two, faith. Main point three, peace. And, and we say a lot of true things, but we, we wouldn't honor the way the text comes to us unless we understand that Paul is making a concluding statement, right? Or it's, a, it's an if-then statement or a because statement. Because we've been justified. Because we have been justified, we have peace. Right? So when we understand that that's how the logic of the text develops that those who have been justified on the grounds of their justification, not on the grounds of their obedience, not on the grounds of their faithfulness, not on the grounds of sacrifices that we do to feel better for our sins. No, but on the grounds of our justification by faith, we have peace with God. See, that's, that's how the text flows. It's an obvious example, but um, it helps to kind of get our, our minds working in the right direction. Um, a narrative example, we look at Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So if, if we did a sermon here about the leading of the Spirit, and a sermon about it, point number one, the leading of the Spirit. Point number two, the tempta temptation from the devil. Point number three, the wilderness. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could do that maybe. But if you did that, you know, you, you talk about three random things, but you're, you're that are in the text, certainly, but you're not talking about them in the way the text gives them to us. So it's, it's because the Spirit led him in, in the purpose, right? This is a purpose clause. The purpose of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness was so that he would be tempted by the devil. The purpose of the Spirit leading him was so that he would be tempted by the devil. It's not just a bunch of random words thrown together, and we're not just making random observations about those words. We're trying to understand how those words fit together to form ideas and single arguments. Um, okay, and and we, we can do that it's not just with words, but with paragraphs, too. Uh, even, even if we understand the individual paragraphs, we don't understand how those paragraphs fit together. We don't understand the text. So this is an example of words. We understand all the words, but we don't understand how the words fit together. We don't understand the text, but the same is true with paragraphs as well. We understand how the pair, if, if we understand individual paragraphs, but we don't see how they fit together. We don't understand the text. So Hebrews 
12, 18 through 29. I want you to, I want you to look at this with the people in your group and try to understand what, what's the connection between these two paragraphs. Okay, so read those together and try to understand what's the connection between those two paragraphs. We're trying to understand the logical connection between the two. So read that in your group. We'll come back and yeah, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Okay, so what's the what's the connecting idea between the two paragraphs? Contrast. Yeah, I, I do think there's a contrast, right? So especially in the first paragraph. So in the first paragraph, there's a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? Where you could say the old covenant is more glorious. I'm sorry, the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. Good. Kind of compare and contrast. Like, yeah, in the old covenant, even at Sinai, it was like people need to fear God because he's powerful. And so yes. In the new covenant, we need to continue to fear God. Yeah, I think so. Look at this, look at this phrase here, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is that in reference to? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, I yeah, Jesus specifically his blood, right? So I, I think and it seems that the speaking, right? So this is the speaking of a better word than able. So there's a contrast between Jesus speaking and able speaking. But um, I think it's a contrast in verse 22. They could not endure the order given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So again, it's, it's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant, showing the glories of the new covenant. And so if, if, you, could, if you did not refuse the one who was speaking in the old covenant and he was speaking words of judgment, how much more should we not refuse the one speaking in the new covenant who is speaking words of grace? And what happens if we do? Well, then we don't inherit the kingdom that will not be shaken. But those, these are not just two random paragraphs. They progress a single argument for the superiority of the new covenant. And they urge us towards um, understanding and responding to the graciousness of the new covenant. So that's an example for an epistle. Look at look at Ruth one also. Ruth one. Th there's there's more than one way we can do this on on a big picture level. Um, so I, look at this text again and try to divide it up. I think I think with narratives it's especially powerful to divide it up into scenes, right? Into scenes. So scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four, scene five, and so on. I want you to think about this text. What are the scenes of this text? Well, what, what are the individual sections doing and um, how do they flow? How, how do they flow together? How do we understand the whole in light of the parts? So how would you divide this up into scenes? Just talk about that in your groups. How many scenes did your groups come up with for this text? How many scenes? Three. Three scenes, okay. Did anyone come up with more than three or less than three? Two scenes, okay. Anyone else? 
London, Canada, because that piece in London. So there's more than one way to do this for sure. Um, you know, I, I think you could, you could have up to five scenes. You could have up to five scenes if you wanted to. It depends on how you want to, um, how you want to divide them up. Um, verses one through two A seem to be setting the backdrop, right? Uh, it just kind of tells us everything. It tells us all our main characters, right? Um, but starting halfway through verse two to the end, it it, it certainly it it the tone shifts a little bit. Um, but I do think probably just one scene, right? And we could probably just list it as Naomi's tragedy. This is Naomi's tragedy. This is the tragic backdrop to the story. Um, then if we move, move on with that, six through 19. So the, them coming to Bethlehem. Probably call that Naomi's return. Naomi's returning to Bethlehem. Uh, that might be scene two. Um, this scene three could be Naomi's response, maybe. You could even you could even say that you have, you know, Naomi's return that starts here. Um, and then starting in verse eight, you could have maybe Naomi's response on the road. And then Naomi's response in Bethlehem. Because both of those feature Naomi talking, right? I'm just saying there's more than one right way to do this. But what we're just trying to do is kind of think through how to. Uh, I, I I might give that its own scene. Um, the 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 narrator leaves. It's almost like he's he's listening to the dialogue back and forth and back and forth. And then the narrator, the narrator backs up and he speaks and he, he lets you know something that, that the characters don't know. But let's, let's look at one more. If we look at Joel two, Joel two. So this is a, a poetic example. I think, I think there's three developments here. If you're preaching this text or preaching one of these texts, um, in verses one through 11, there seems to be a, an emphasis on judgment. I think we could call it judgment promised. Right? There's an act of judgment that's coming. It's being promised that people are going to experience judgment. Um, then scene two would probably be verses 12 through 17, which, which explains the, um, if we call the first one judgment promised, we call the second one repentance offered. So in light of the day of the Lord, Joel gives Judah the words they can use to repent. And he pleads with them to repent. And then verses 18 through 27, we call that restoration given, I think. The Lord, the Lord hears the repentance, and this is how he's going to respond in light of the repentance. Um, because So what I'm trying to prove here is that it, what we need in our sermon is not just to understand individual words, but understand how the words work together, the sentences work together, the paragraphs work together. And outlining, I think, does that well. Um, 
So that's for our benefit, but we're doing it for our, our audience's benefit as well. So our, our audience benefits from it because if they don't understand the, the flow of the text and the flow of the sermon, we're going to lose them. They're not going to be, they're going to benefit. They're not going to be encouraged. They're going to be confused. It's going to seem jumbled, like a, a bunch of random ideas that don't fit together for them. So, so outlining, what outlining does then is it, it allows for more precise explanation. It allows us to prepare and preach the sermon precisely and accurately, understanding what's being said and explaining it well. So I, I think we can say that there's, there's two kinds of outlines that you'll be doing when you're preparing your sermon. There's two kinds of outlines. One is the exegetical outline. And the second is the homiletical outline. The, the exegetical outline and the homiletical outline. And we're going to be working with both of those today. So the, the exegetical outline simply seeks to make observations about the text. It helps us know the development of the text. The homiletical outline helps us know the development of the sermon. the development of the text and the development of the sermon. That's what we're trying to do. So let's talk first about the exegetical outline. So bro broadly speaking, it seeks to display the logic of the narrative or of the, of the text. The, we can say the logical and narratival developments of the text, the logical and narratival developments of the text. So more that's, that's broadly speaking more specifically uh, it seeks to display the logical developments of each phrase. It seeks to display the logical or, or narratival developments of each sentence. Helps us understand how they all work together. Um, so we're, we're going to use the, the Bible arc. Um, so what, it, Bible arc, I think, is a, it's a really helpful website for understanding, for doing this kind of exegetical outline of the text so uh, we're going to do an example um you can even do this with me if you'd like to we're going to click on this phrasing um button we're going to choose a passage and i i want us to do ephesians 1 uh 3 through 14 ephesians 1 3 through 14 and, and what we can do here is observe, again, the natural flow of the text um, so that we can uh, write sermons from it, right? So it allows us to write sermons from the text. It allows us to understand the text. So this, this is, I'll go ahead and start the, this for us, and then we'll work more on this together after that. Um, before to edit this, I think we would, the, the main, the big idea that hits us right away is blessed be the God and father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. All right. So it's, it's blessed be the one who has blessed us. And then we find out more about how he has blessed us. So we can drag this over. To the blessed us, he's blessed us in Christ. 
He's blessed us with every. See how those those three ideas summarize the blessing. So, so if if you're then transitioning to a homiletical outline, you could preach a whole sermon then on verse three. Right? We should we should praise the God who has blessed us. How has He blessed us? He's blessed us. Main point one: He's blessed us in Christ. Main point two: He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Main point three: He's blessed us in the heavenly places. You see. And we're not imposing anything on the text. We're, we're drawing from the text what the text already says, right? So then um, we get an explanation of the blessing, an explanation of the blessing. So even as in the first blessing he lists is he chose us. So then if you were going to divide it up next, where, where, would, you, where would you divide it next? He chose us. What's the how? How is the choosing described? In Him. Good. That's right. So we block it next. In Him. Where Where the next division be? Before the salvation, foundation of the world. Yes. Where would the next division be? That we should be hoping. Good. So then, again, if you're writing a sermon, you can talk about how He chose us. The the sphere in which he chose us or the, the means by which he chose us, when he chose us, the purpose for which he chose us. You see that? So again, we're not imposing anything on the text. We're just observing the natural divisions of the text. Um, now this in love, that's, I, I think most likely the ESV is right that it goes with the predestination because of how Paul uses similar phrases elsewhere. So what I would do to make up for um, to make up for that is just kind of move it. I might just move it right here. So th then we get the the predestinating. Now, in the original, it's clear the the predestinating is is subordinate to the the choosing. It's not a new idea. It's not he chose us and he predestined us. It actually is subordinate to. You just have to trust me on that. Um, but for those of you who know, who know your Greek, the choosing is an indicative verb. The predestinating is, is a, is a um, participle. So it, it's, um, it's subordinate to the choosing. But um, how, where would the next divide, dividing be? So he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Where would you divide it next? adoption yes that's right for adoption so he predestined us for adoption good where would you where would you do it next jesus christ yeah you could do it through jesus christ you could do it as sons also well, probably it's just a little redundant to do that but yeah through jesus christ where, where would you divide it next yes according to the purpose of his will and then where does this go to the praise of his glorious grace? Where does that go? I would put it in line with according to the purpose of his will. So if that's the case, then he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace is what we're saying, right? No, because the choosing is also to the praise. Yes, that's exactly right. Or is the choosing alone to the praise of his glorious grace? That's the question we've got to ask. Or is the whole package to the praise of his glorious grace? What do you guys think? 
Uh, does it matter as much if he predestined us is subordinate to he chose us? It seems like it'd be the choosing and all choosing package, which includes predestining us as the great Yeah, I like calling that the choosing package. And this is where um, this can benefit us. Uh, one thing you can do is create a box around all of this to display something. And I, I would probably do it like this. Um, so I'm go back to editing. You could, you could do it like this. Um, the choosing, or no, you wouldn't do it like that. Uh, okay, you could probably do it like this. Right. So I'm referring kind of to the whole box there. All of that is to the praise of his glorious grace is probably how I would display it. There's more than, again, there's more than one right way to do it, but I think James is right calling it the, the choosing package. <laughs> and I think that this kind of displays well, that what I, what we're saying is all of that is to the praise of his glorious grace. And then you could probably divide it here with which he has blessed us. Right. That, that describes the grace, right? He has blessed us with the grace. Um, and we could even say, blessed, how has he blessed us in the beloved? We could even divide it here if we wanted to. He has blessed who, us, how, in the beloved one. Does that make sense how we got there? Again, all, all we're doing is just observing what the text already says. Um. So next, um, and this is just an observation and from the original. In the original, it's much more clear, but the redemption, um, the redemption most clearly uh, is like the choosing is an indicative verb. So, so I, I would probably do it something like this in him and then make the we have redemption. Um, make the we have redemption uh, parallel to the choosing, right? So one, he chose us. Two, we have redemption. So then how, where would we divide it next? Through his blood? Yeah. That describes the redemption. Good. Where would we divide it next? Trespass. Yeah, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, where would we put that? Is that subordinate to redemption? I think it's... Is it re What's that? I think it's parallel to redemption. It's parallel to redemption. So we have in him, we have redemption. And in, so we would have in him, we have redemption. And in him, we have the forgiveness of sins. I was saying, uh, I think, I think redemption there is parallel to forgiveness of sins, because it says in Him we have redemption through His blood, and then he, the forgiveness of sins. I think it's like the forgiveness of sins is what that redemption is. Yes, I th I think that that's that's right. So I think the the forgiveness of sins is renaming. 
I, I think I think you're exactly right. The redemption is the redemption through His blood is the forgiveness of sins. So we can even do it like this: redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We, if we want to make it clear that all those are parallel, you know, we don't have to divide it. Or, or we could do we have redemption through His blood, um, the forgiveness of sins, and and do some kind of error or or something. Um, but I, I would probably just put all these on one line. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And that shows very clearly we're, we're talking about one idea there. Um, then where does this go under the riches of his grace? I think in some sense, like James was talking about earlier, it, it refers to the whole package. And we could we could probably show that here. Something like this. The only thing I don't like about this is that you can't say which way you can't tell which way the arrows go. It's like, see, that doesn't even look good. Ooh, you could say this, and we had a redemption through his blood equals the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, so you could do it like that. You say all of it's according, according to the riches of his grace, something like that. Then here, what, what's going on with the lavished upon us? What's that modifying? Is that redemption? So forgiveness. Was the grace? I think it's the redemption. And What's that? The grace. So he. You're saying that he lavished redemption and forgiveness upon us? No, he lavished grace upon us. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Or he even do it like this, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And when he lavished, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose he set forth in Christ. Now we're getting really far over, right? We're getting pretty far over at this point. Um, the mystery of his will is the plan for the fullness of time to know things in heaven on earth, right? In him. And we could divide that up more, but the point is to show like this is really, really, really far. And then lastly, we have another in him, right? And then we have a third blessing. Now, the bless, I think. Once again, there's, a, there's an in him followed by a phrase. Uh, so in Christ, we've received an inheritance. Turn of the receiving the inheritance next. Where would you divide it next? 
what modifies the predestining? Inheritance. We have been obtained and an inheritance. We're saying according to the purpose. Yeah, according to the purpose. Yes, the purpose of him who works all things, the counsel of his will. And what about Well, according to the counsel of his will, can be like yeah, I think so. According to the hymn of, I think the so that is describing the reason for the predestinating. So we're predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, and we're predestined so that we who are the first of Christ might be the praise of glory um then we get to the sealing of the spirit so i think the in him like the redemption it it, it prepares us for um the sealing but again the sealing you were sealed this is the main idea you were redeemed you were chosen you were sealed Let's talk about the, the in him. You also, where would you divide it next? Yes. Yeah, I think we can do when you heard the word of truth, which is, and we can even edit this, right? equals the gospel of your salvation. And it's when you heard and believed. It's when you heard and when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this tells us more about the Holy Spirit, right? And again, in the, in the, in the Greek, this is more clear. But I think I think what's being said here is that the um, all of all of what comes up here, all of this goes together. So we could even bring this down and do another box, maybe. All that is, is describing the sealing of the spirit. So we could even do a separator here. Okay. Now, now we can also, we can go beyond that and mark these subordinate phrases. So for instance, we can do this, the, the even as here is connected to the chose us. It's connected. The second one is the redemption. The third one is the ceiling. So we can kind of see quickly at all of those. Those are three, three blessings. Um, so we could, we could even, 
connect the, the even as he chose us to the blessing. Or actually, we'd probably do it like this. Like that. Uh, and we can do a lot to kind of make this nice and fancy. Something like this. He chose us. We have redemption. We were sealed. If you want to, we can, we can highlight you know, the in Christ phrases, you know, through Jesus Christ, um, in the beloved. So there's a lot of like observation things you can do here, right? If you want to. In Christ, I'm probably not going to get all of them. I'm just kind of doing it quickly here. In Christ, in him. Right. So there's a lot you can do for observations, but but in short, this shows us this shows us the flow, the flow of the text. Does everyone understand what we did there? Are any questions about that? So let's do one more before our lunch break, because you'll you'll be wanting to do this next. Uh, for for your own um, for your own text, let's look. Uh, let's look at a narrative text. Let's look at Matthew four, one through eleven. Matthew four one through eleven. So let's let's start by dividing it up into scenes. Okay, so talk in your groups. Let's talk about our, our narrative scenes. What, how would you divide this up big picture before we try to understand the individual phrases, how they relate to one another? Talk about that in your group. So we brought out line of the scenes. Okay, so what, what would be scene one? Jesus tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. You're right. This section, verses one and two, I think if we labeled it, so it tells us what to expect. Put the separator. Um, so where would you put the next separator in the text? Where's the next scene? The beginning of verse five. Yeah, I think you're right. So if we if we label this scene one, we could call it the first temptation. Where's the next scene? Where or where does scene one or where does scene two end? Right. So we're, we're probably going to call this one the next. So this is scene two, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or, well, probably not verse 11. We probably want to do one before that. We probably want to do one um, here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we could probably put one. Um, 
for verse 11. But we can do it like this, scene two, three, the third temptation. And then uh, we can probably call this one the conclusion. Right, so we have our, our main scenes or the setting, the first temptation, the second temptation, the third temptation, and the conclusion. And this is, this is usually a pretty good way to, to outline narrative is by asking what are our scenes. Any questions on how we did that before our lunch break? So uh, when we do uh, a, a narration on this uh, uh, app, Bible Arc, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so having this kind of, uh, you know, having the scenes, uh, does that affect our, uh, 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 what, what you call, yeah, exegetical exeget, outline, and also when we do what we did uh, with the first text, with, with the previous text, when we do phrasing. Does it affect our exegesis? Is yeah, that what you're having saying? Scene, having, having the scene, when we yeah. do na na narration, does that affect our phrasing? After what? Ye Yes, it's going to. Yes, it, it certainly is going to. And and we'll uh we'll, we're going to do the phrasing when we come back from lunch break for this for this text. We just don't have time to look at it in depth right now, but we'll do this together. So, but yeah, yeah. So absolutely the, it does. The phrasing uh uh for narration and uh epistles are different. It's not no, um not necessarily. So I I do think with narrative, especially dividing it up into scenes is, is helpful because I, especially with narrative, homiletical outlines can feel artificial when we try to prove, especially moral points from every main point in narrative. There's more than one way to do it, of course. And I think it's going to make sense kind of as we, as we keep going. But, but for instance, we're here, I'll give you a, a hint of where we're going. I, I think we could do it like this. Jesus was led up. Let's do the indent by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then we could, we could say that he was led up by the spirit. All right. So all of these are subordinate to that idea. Led up into the wilderness and is led up to be tempted by the devil. Right. So all three of those are subordinate to the leading up. Um, the after 40 days, it's, it's, not, it's not parallel to these three statements, right? But it's clearly a result. It's, I think that's how I would say it, it's a result. So we said after 40 days uh, and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then we can even, you know, one thing I think is helpful is this relationship tool. Um, so we could probably do it like this, uh, the setting. And then you call this the purpose, maybe. And call this maybe action result. So I'm just making notes, right, of how each one of those fit together. So I'm still making logical observations for the flow of the text. Um, 
it does function a little bit differently in narrative, but even I'll just show you, we could say, we could do it like this. The tempter came and the tempter said, right? And did two things. First, he came to Jesus. Secondly, he said to Jesus. So in that sense, it's very similar to what we did here. He chose us in him for the foundation of the world that we should be. But in another sense, it, it really does flow a little bit differently, but we can do the same thing, but it just looks a little different.